Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Writers write. They don't write one script where, you know, I don't know, George dates a transvestite and then angrily sit around going, wouldn't George date a transvestite? I don't care if you think it's stupid. This is my script. You know what I mean? It's like, no, George wouldn't date a transvestite for a thousand reasons, not because they're a transvestite. No problem with any of that because it's stupid and hacky. It's a hacky, shitty idea. That's why he wouldn't do it. That's why it wouldn't be an episode of Seinfeld. And so write another script. And even if you're right that somehow that is brilliant and we're all wrong, then write 10 more scripts. And when you're in charge of Hollywood, pull out your transvestite script and shove it all up our asses and make us pay for it. But don't just sit there angrily with your transvestite script thinking like you're right and we're all wrong and that eventually we'll come to you. Write more. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I always laugh. I don't know what it is when I look at my guests that I have a warm, a fuzzy feeling for, and I certainly do for my guest today, Dave Mandel. I've always had a great feeling about Dave. There's just something about him. He walks in a room and you just, I don't know, you just feel ah, like everything is going to be okay. And as I've talked about Many times before, there's the two kinds of people that walk in a room. There's the kind of guy who walks in the room and it's like, ah, everything's going to be okay. And there's the guy who walks in the room and the hair on the back of your neck stands (laughs) up and you know, not good. And hopefully you don't have to work with that person every day. But before I start, I want to thank everybody so much for all the support. Been incredible. I'm so grateful and so appreciative you can't even imagine and being asked back to the Montreal just for laughs festival where my guest is going to be this summer as well for the second time for me in three years. And it's all because of the support that you guys have given to the show. Cause I can guarantee you if the show wasn't being supported by you, no call from Montreal. They don't need you. They don't want you. They don't care about you if you're not doing anything that's moving the needle 
And for some reason, you guys have helped this show do that. And it's flattering, it's humbling, and I am grateful. I want to start off with this cold open. And as you know, I never know what I'm going to say. And I said, look at Dave. I think back to my experiences on a show that he was a huge, huge part of and one of the writers of the show, an instrumental part of the program. And so when I was there, I had a lot of people who were on the show during the time when Dave was there. People that I worked with at the time were people like Jay Moore and Tracy Morgan, Daryl Hammond and Jim Brewer. And although I work with her now, I didn't work with her then, but I was very close to Sherry O'Terry back then. And the navigation at Saturday Night Live is an incredible thing that is so hard to understand and so hard to explain to everybody about how it works. And rather than go into the different details and machinations of how it is, suffice to say, you're working with a group of people closely who I would say would be around 50 people really closely. When I'm talking about 50, I'm talking about the cast members, I'm talking about the writers, I'm talking about the segment producers, I'm even talking about the cue card person, I'm talking about the executives underneath Lauren who were producing the show like Marcy Klein or people who were coming up through the ranks during the time. And I call it this tight group of people because they would all be together in one room besides when the show was taking place during the times when ideas were pitched to the group. And the thing that fascinated me, and I've been in those rooms because I've had hosts on the show and I've walked through the hallways with different people during the wee hours of the night. And one of the things that's hard to understand because the show works the way it works and it's in a system that doesn't even seem like a normal system. Because where Dave works now on Veep, it's a completely different system than Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live starts on a Monday. And if you're a new cast member, you're like, oh, all right. It's my first week. Let me get there at 9 a.m. Let me get there early and, and, and hang out. I know there's going to be a Monday meeting. This is really exciting. And then you're sitting on a couch for eight hours and people start strolling in. And if there's a meeting that's scheduled to be at maybe four or five, who knows? Might start at six. Might start at seven. Might start at eight. And when it starts, you're like, oh, my God. How could a show that's been on the air for 40 some odd years not have this really tight formatted structure of how things are going to be and how people come in and when they come in? Because it's odd because when you're around Lorne Michaels, you're with a guy who's, and again, I don't use this term loosely, a genius. Anybody who's been working and creating and running a show for over 40 years and it's still significant and relevant. That's not luck. That's a man who knows how to navigate and is a genius. But what's unique about that is when you get to the show, and I think he would say this if he were sitting here, you really don't have a tight-knit structure of how you feel things are going. When you're writing your sketches after you pitch them, you're up until the wee hours of the morning. There's guys working there until four in the morning on Tuesday sometimes. 
So when I was there, there were people who knew how to navigate well through the structure of the system of, I guess, organized chaos in a way, but chaos is good in that sense because it creates brilliant sketches and brilliant content. And so there were people that I work with who they might not have had the greatest cred in the world, like Tracy Morgan. He might never have really gotten on. As a matter of fact, Tracy did a sketch on Weekend Update where he made fun of the fact that all of his segments through the whole year were the goodnights, and they showed his highlights of him waving goodnights. But he knew how to kind of navigate, knew how to play it, so he kept his job and he kept going. Daryl Hammond went through many trials and tribulations on the show. Many things that are even unspoken that I can't even talk about that were very, very difficult times. But he knew how to put his head down and just go through it and knew how to navigate with the writers and have the relationship with the writers. Because normally what the writers want, they want to hang out with the people who are going to get sketches on. Guess who the most popular person to hang out with during the time that Dave was there? It was Will Ferrell, because Will always got on. And if you're a writer writing stuff, you want to get your shit on. And the people that weren't getting stuff on, it was harder for them to do it, so they would try their best to hang out and do whatever. But I remember a cast member there who I represented, Jim Brewer. Probably, for the record, I haven't really talked about Jim Brewer that much on this show. For those of you who don't follow Jim Brewer or know Jim Brewer, or ever seen Jim Brewer perform, probably one of the most talented performers and funniest guys you will ever see do stand-up in your entire life. And in person as well, a guy who literally can just make anyone laugh in a second, the guy can go on and off like a light switch and make it happen. But for some reason at the show, Jim couldn't figure out how to navigate at his best with the writers and make things work and make them feel like they were empowered, which was really shocking because Jim, one of the most lovable, huggable, likable people around other comics and other people, you just always wanted to be around Jim. But sometimes things can happen where you do things and you don't really understand the ramifications. You're just trying to get yourself to the next level. And I remember Jim got offered a cover story on a rock and roll magazine in the New Jersey, Long Island area, which was very popular. And they did the interview with him. And in the interview, he talked about how he wasn't getting things on as much. And basically, in its own way, it sort of talked about the writers in a way where he wasn't getting what he needed from them in that way. But you know, when an article comes out, people read things. Articles and text, your texts, everybody, they don't reflect tone. Articles don't reflect tone unless it's a masterful writer. And so naturally all the writers read the stuff in the magazine about how Jim wasn't necessarily clicking with the writers the way he felt he should be, and I'm generalizing here. And that was a tough time for Jim. And when it came time to pick up his contract, I remember Lauren calling me and saying, we're going to extend it. We don't know if we're going to pick him up or not. And then he told me he was going to make a decision by a certain date. 
And I remember I was always very good at writing letters. It's something my mother always taught me. It's a dying art, writing letters. And I wrote this incredibly passionate letter to Lorne, telling him how much I felt that Jim Brewer would be great for the show and just stick with him. He's only had two years on. Mistakes happen. People say things. And he can create better relationships with people, and it will end up working. And I guarantee you, he will not disappoint you. He will give everything he has to the show. And I remember Lauren called me at like midnight, the night before he was supposed to make that decision. And he called me and he told me, look, Barry, your letter was amazing. He actually said it's a dying art, and I really appreciate it. And I really like Jim, but I just can't get the support of the writing staff as a whole. It's too far gone. I can't do it. And granted, I do have veto power. I can make decisions on my own. But in this case, I feel that it wouldn't be the right thing for the show and wouldn't be the right thing for the writers and it wouldn't be the right thing for Jim. And I'm sorry, but I can't. I can't do it, and I'm going to let him go. And as I sit across from Dave Mandel, I think of a guy who seems to have always known how to navigate, a guy who always figures out a way to make things work. And even though he stayed at SNL three years, it's not like he went from SNL and basically went into a coma and nobody saw him again. The guy always works. And he always works because when you see him, you hang around with him. You know he's a really, really wonderful guy. You know he's very gifted. You know he's very talented. You know people love being around him. But that's not all it takes to being a great artist. You have to know how to navigate and you have to know how to create relationships that last the test of time. And if you do do anything that upsets anybody along the way, you have to know how to have the skills in your emotional toolbox to clean each one of them up individually so you can move forward and have a chance to work effectively in this business. So if there's any lesson from anything having to do with Dave Mandel and the story of Jim Brewer, you can be talented, you can be funny, you can do anything you want, but you have to be in a situation where you know what you're saying, you're cognizant of what you say. Never write anything down or have anything documented that you wouldn't share with your grandparents or anybody in your life that could look over it a hundred times and say, okay, this is okay. And if you take the care in your career regarding these situations where you really, really think about what you're doing and how you talk to people and how you communicate to other people that might get the word out to the people you work with. I think you're going to be great in your career. And I can guarantee you, if you follow those rules and have the kind of talent and the navigational skill that Dave Mandel has, you're going to have an extraordinary career. 
Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. When I got there, which is the tail end of when you were leaving, I remember you having a great relationship with Lauren that third year. Like where Absolutely. it was like the relationship was unlike those that you saw where there was no filter and there was no walking on eggshells. You just would hang out and you'd walk with him a lot and he would talk with you and he almost felt like a kindred father figure well, spirit to you. I don't know about that. You know, you never, I can't go that far. I did, you know, in that sort of the road not taken. And it was very difficult for me to leave the show um, when I left. I, I wasn't happy. It, I felt like the show wasn't good. I don't think people would disagree with that at that point. That was the time when was the, the article seventh, came out that said yeah, Saturday Night Dead. Right. Well, it was one of the many Saturday Night Dead articles. But yes, it was the Farley New York Magazine cover. Was and Janine it, Garofalo part yes, of that Yes, it was the 17-person cast with Janine and Chris Elliott and Mark McKinney. And it was just kind of a mess. And you know, the following year, Lauren cleaned house of the cast, and that's when he started to find a lot of these other people and whatnot. And I, you know, you have to, you always think the road not taken. I would, I think I would have really enjoyed that next step. And I, I feel like based on what I was doing that final year of the show, where I was helping to put together specials and taking like producing, I think I got a producing credit on a Mother's Day special or something. I can't even remember. I felt like I was being poised for more i guess that they were you know what i mean like that that had i been back there would have been more um but uh you know it was it was interesting you know with lauren um like i said i i was very on edge until he said sort of that thing and then that summer i was sort of convinced by somebody to ask for his yankee tickets which he has wonderful yankee seats he's always had and during the summer is sometimes away and doesn't use them. And, you know, it's funny you told that your letter story. I wrote, uh, I got, I took the Yankee seats and they were wonderful and I had a great time. Uh, and I wrote a thank you note because that's what my parents, that's how I was raised. You write a thank you note and you say thank you because I was given at the time, you know, these incredible box seats and I was given, I think, four of them and it was incredible. And I, gave, I, I, I wrote the note, and then it was sort of soon told to me, sort of whatever, that I was welcome for the seats, you know, if they were available whenever. And every time I, it sounds silly, but every time I took the seats, I wrote a note and said thank you and maybe mentioned something about the game. And I kind of remember when the season sort of started up, which would have been my second season, it sounds so silly, but then I, there were hockey tickets and different things of that nature. And I, I remember getting like, um, a, you know, a wonderful, um, Lauren had sort of found out from people how into movies I was. I remember getting uh, from like a really great like Criterion Laserdisc set from him with a couple of tickets. And, and it's sort of, I don't know, I can't say it was because I wrote a thank you note, but I certainly probably didn't hurt. It is because of that, because people appreciate things. And when you're somebody like Lauren who works with, let's just say, 
50 immediate people and probably another 50 or 60 or 70 on the show, he could count the thank you notes he got on half a hand. I, I will, you know, we were talking about navigating and I don't mean this specifically about Lauren, but you know, when I was at the show and you know, early on, you know, you're trying to get stuff on and we can talk about that more if you want to. Um, I just got in the habit. I mean, I don't want to say it was a habit. I wasn't trying to do it to get anybody to like me or whatever, but I did try and make sure that like when the show ended and I had something on, I would go and say hi and thank you to Davey Wilson, who was the director at the time and just kind of pop in there before he left that, you know, at like 1am because he often didn't go to the parties. And I just always wanted to sort of say, hey, thank you and say thank you to the various departments that had helped me with my sketch. And again, I guess it was sort of in a world where no one is thanking them. I just wanted them to know that I certainly appreciated the sketch happening because for me, that sketch was my life. If I got a sketch on, that was a huge thing. So it made the perfect sense in the world just to thank the people that helped make my thing possible because that thing was what was keeping me on the show. Um, and, you know, in those early days, it was just, as you put it, you're dying to get something on. And so I, I often went the other way, which was to say, well, everyone's writing for them. Who's light this week? So, for example, one of the first things I think I ever got on was uh, Melanie Hutzel had done a Tory Spelling sort of impression um, in a 90210 sketch the year before I got there. And so I wrote this little thing. It was sort of a Tory Spelling talk show. Every episode took place in a different room of Aaron Spelling's 116-room mansion. And I remember the one joke I loved was her defending her audition for her father that she had done it under a different name. That was a real story <laughs> that she had done it under, she had auditioned under an assumed name. And our joke, of course, was that she had auditioned under the name uh, Susan Spelling. It was the reverse. <laughs> anyway, um, and those were some of the first things that I got on. Um, some of the first stuff I got on were commercial parodies because I, it was a chance to sort of work in, you know, sort of in the isolation, not of the competition for the show. The commercial unit was sort of its own thing. So again, it was sort of taking a lay of the land and just trying to figure out how am I going to get stuff on? Well, these are ways I can get stuff on. Um, and then when I didn't have something on, I made myself as useful as possible, whether it was, uh, I remember watching early, like not early, early on, but eventually sometimes like if Mike Myers got a sketch on, maybe I'd be the writer that would watch the sketch from the booth for him and sort of process the notes. And if I didn't get anything on and I wasn't watching something, then I wrote update jokes. I mean, I, I remember, you know, killing myself to write update jokes and, you know, and obviously, and then, and then you're living and dying on single jokes, of course. And I remember one that I wanted in so badly. I think they might've tried it at dress, but didn't make air. There was a Marge shot was the owner of the Cincinnati Reds. She's she a was, racist. She was a racist. She was like a Nazi. She had a big dog named Shotzi and they had found like Nazi memorabilia and she didn't like black people. It was, she was not, and they sort of pushed her out eventually. But, uh, there had been some trade. I don't know if it was the, I'm a big Yankee fan. I don't know if it was the Paul O'Neill trade, but maybe it was the Paul O'Neill trade who was a, one, one of my favorite Yankees. Anyway, not, not the point of the story. Um, and I had written a joke where it was uh, that they had done this trade with, the Yankees had done this trade with Marge Schott. And it was a triangle trade joke. It was like, blah, blah, blah for Paul Ryan, who was sent to the West Indies for rum and slaves. And that was the joke because she was a Nazi. And I think it went, it just didn't land for the audience. But I loved that joke. But again, it just was sort of 
how do I get anything on the show? How do I get anything on the show? And it's a pro it was a process, but, uh, you know, along the way, you know, my, I guess my fond memories were sort of, you know, one of the great things about SNL is that sort of make or break, which is you are the mini producer of your sketch. And so the skills that I feel like I learned to talk, I'm not talking about the thank you stuff. I'm talking about talking to a director about blocking, talking to a set designer about what the set you want, talking to a costume designer, where again, I think you get a lot of people who come onto a sitcom out here in a room and rise up the ladder somewhat quickly or not, you know, and find themselves whatever and have never edited, have never spoken to the director, have never whatever. And that's where Saturday Night Live is just whether you have a good or bad experience there, I still would argue that some of that training is just invaluable. Whether you want to embrace it or not, that's up to you. But I mean, it was an amazing first job. And like I said, I do think about the road not taken a little bit, but I, I left for Seinfeld, which was hard to argue with. So can't complain <laughs> yeah. about that. But Lauren and I, just to, to loop back to that, you know, when I came back for my second year, there was a lot of changeover. Dana had left. Some of the senior writers like Bonnie and Terry Turner had left. And so all of a sudden, some of us that didn't have that many years of experience under our belt were more senior. And, you know, my time at the show, there was good stuff and frustration stuff. I always felt like I was the guy, and again, this was my own feeling, that I was the guy that was willing to write the monologue when no one was willing to write the monologue. But you're never going to get a lot of credit, and that monologue is never going to or rarely going to be anybody's favorite sketch. Do you know what I mean? And I did feel like there were other writers who were like working on Lauren movies and stuff, and that they were sort of, you know, again, this is these are the feelings at SNL that you all have that I felt like were getting sort of more favored nation treatment and we're not working as hard as some of the others of us, but this is just how you feel when you're there. Um, but, and I just always felt like I'm going to write this. I'm going to write, I'm going to make sure there's a monologue. I'm going to make sure there's this or whatever. And, uh, it, it, you know, and that's why that's the love and the hate of the place. And I do think, um, as the show went forward and some of those guys like the Danas and the Phils who could do anything in the world, left, we had a very often funny, but often one note cast. And that was sort of the problems in those back end. And yet also at the same time, really ballooned and larged up so that guys like Jay Moore, who I always felt was a real natural on camera, just couldn't fight his way through and stuff like that. So it's, it's a, it's a wonderful, horrible place. I mean, it's one of those things where I was so ready to leave when I left and yet I am so glad I went there. Do you know what I mean? I, that's the easiest way I can explain it. So tell our audience the feeling that you have when you're still in your early 20s. You're on one of the greatest, most respected shows in history. And you get an offer to work on Seinfeld. Well, the Seinfeld thing was sort of a, a little bit of a funny thing, um, which was Jeff and Alec, now we're back to Schaefer and Berg. They're living in L.A. And my... Third year of SNL, they get hired. They got hired at Seinfeld, and now I'm hating SNL so much that what I'm doing is, on the breaks, especially in the spring where you would do two shows on and two shows off, I'm going to LA and I don't have a driver's license, so I'm staying with Schaefer and Berg and I'm just going with them to Seinfeld. Working, I go to Seinfeld with them to work. And I sit in their office and then I kind of come out for lunch and I slowly got to know all the writers and Larry and Jerry. And I was like the, I was like the 
the special guest, the lunch guest, like, cause a lot of them had had SNL experiences. Larry had worked there. Uh, Carol Leifer was there, whatever. And it was one of those things where all of a sudden Peter Melman, who we mentioned, I realized I knew his brother in New York and, you know, you start to find these things. So I'm kind of hanging out at the offices and, uh, you know, which was a very funny thing. And I had been thinking about leaving anyway, but I wasn't even thinking about, I mean, I would have, I was working on Seinfeld stuff to give to Larry. Um, the way you would get a job was you had to give them idealists and stuff. And, uh, I was working on stuff and then somewhere in there, pulse and, and then, Oh God, that's right. Um, Larry was, I think in a big renegotiation and was possibly even, I think leaving the show. That was the rumor at the time. Um, and, I remember Larry showing up at the uh, final show of SNL that year, who may have, I think Heather Locklear was the host, um, and he was heading to Europe, but it stopped in New York and came to the show and basically said, uh, I'm coming back to Seinfeld, send me ideas. And I think he had talked to Jim Downey about me also. And then I was working on ideas and I got a phone call like a week later and he hired me. He said, just, you're hired. Come to Seinfeld. Before you sent the idea. Before I sent the ideas. But in my defense, when I was pitching out um, my first show, I, I, whatever idea I went like, blah, 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 blah. Um, what was in that first show? Uh, the pool, it was the pool guy. So it was the pool guy. Oh, I, I don't remember which part it was. It was it. What's the Kramer story in the pool guy? Oh, Kramer's doing, uh, he's the movie phone. He gets the new phone number and he's the movie phone, whatever. Larry was like, would this have been on your idea sheet? And I said, yeah. And he goes, okay, good. So that was good. But I had spent at that point, I had spent a lot of time with them and I think they had sort of known me, whereas most people are normally anonymously applying for jobs. What happens when you go to Jim Downey and Lauren and say, I know you guys bet on me as a young guy and I know you've given me a job for three years and supported me here, but see ya. How do you handle that? Well, you know, again, I, you know, I, I'm a, I guess, believer in the sort of the personal and, uh, I, 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 if I remember correctly, Lauren was at Paramount and we walked together. I took a walk with him at Paramount and I, and I told him I was moving on. And I, and I think, and he was really great about it. I mean, I always remember him being great about it. I think he understood that the show was in flux and regardless of whether he was thinking of other things for me or not, which again, I'll never really know. I think he knew that the show in its current form wasn't working. I don't think he, no one was blaming me or anything like that, but I think it was a t an okay time to leave because there were perhaps bigger fish to fry. So it, it was, but again, you do it in person. I, again, I'm just a big believer in that. Um, so we, 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 we walked, we strolled and we chatted and, uh, and it couldn't have been better. And, uh, you know, again, I, I think I mentioned going back with Julia, but I went back with Jerry when Jerry hosted, when SNL ended in like, uh, I guess I would have been 98 when Seinfeld ended. Sorry. Jerry hosted the, I think it was the season premiere right after the, the big first anniversary show. And I was back there with Jerry and it was, and that was really the first time I had been back, back again, sort of like writing for the week. And much like this time with Julia, everybody, but Lauren in particular could not have been more just gracious and welcoming. And it was that sense of like, 
you're the grad from the school and they're happy to have you back like a, like a beloved alum or something. So that was, it's always been very nice. I've always been very sort of proud of that ability to sort of go back or whatever. And for example, on our staff this year, during the summer months, we have one, an SNL writer who then leaves to go back to SNL, a guy named Eric Kenward. And it's worked out great. I think part of what makes it work is that, you know, I'm a known quantity to Lorne, you know, we all know each other, we all like each other and whatever in a good way. So it's just, it's a, it's a relationship that I certainly value. So, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm glad it's sort of nice. That's, I guess, the good news. <laughs> awesome. All right. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name sure. or something and just say the first yeah, thing yeah. that comes to mind. It could be one word. It could be a sentence. It sure. could be a story. It could be anything. Sasha Baron Cohen. <sighs> Frustrating. He is absolutely brilliant, but I think he gets in his own, he gets in his own way. I think sometimes, I think there were iterations. Uh, early on, I had the pleasure of, I got, uh, Larry Charles was a uh, Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm guy who obviously directed uh, Borat. And um, I remember seeing, you know, the early versions of the Ali G show and seeing, the, you know, the Borat character and whatever and just loving it. Uh, heard Larry was doing this movie, got invited to an early screening, which was not 100% locked and was certainly longer than the movie that it was originally. And it was just fantastic and incredible. And somewhere in the, and it, you know, just proud to be there. And somewhere along the way, they were looking for a new ending for the movie. And Elsie uh, invited uh, me, Jeff, and Alec in, and we sat with Sasha and his guys and uh we pitched out the uh the idea the uh the original ending of the movie uh was he gets to LA to find Pamela Anderson and gets to like a beach wedding did you, I, I don't know if you ever saw any of these early versions there was a wedding and he thinks she's getting married but she's not getting married her dog is getting married it was this LA dog ceremony and he sort of, I think, sing, sings like a love song or something and ultimately gets tackled. The tackling was funny. The rest of it wasn't particularly working um, to, to my eyes. And I think that was what the feedback they, they were getting was, this is a brilliant movie, the end doesn't exactly work. And so in this sort of session that we were invited to, we uh, you know, pitched out a bunch of different things, but ultimately came up with, uh, Jeff Alec and I came up with the notion of an autograph signing where he goes and presents her with all these gifts and then tries to throw the rape bag sort of over her. And it was really wonderful and really exciting that they did it and it worked and it was so good. And I, I'm very proud of that. And we get a little thank you at the end of that movie. We're there at the very end, which was nice. And, uh, and off of that, we started sort of popping in on some of Sasha's other movies, usually doing like, you know, like a week here and a week there. And he got, we, we rewrote another movie for him and things like that. It was all wonderful. Um, the dictator was something that we sort of worked on with Sasha and sold. It was this original idea. Um, really happy with it. But, you know, when I look back, I guess I would just argue that I, I, I guess the, the, you know, there's a lot of funny new stuff, but there were just times where it was like just changing things. It felt like for change's sake. And I'm not particularly fond of the end, the end result, you know, I, you know, give me, you know, our, one of our earlier drafts or something. It just was very frustrating. And I, and, and, and it just, 
I don't have any great answer. It just was frustrating. I, that's the easiest way I can say it. Michael Richards. Um, boy, you know, I was going to just honestly say funny, and I feel bad for him sometimes, which I guess is something to say, which is, again, one man's opinion. I, I, I've seen the tape of what he was, you know, or heard it or whatever you want to call it, the, the, the experience. The, the, the N-word tape yes, at the Laugh Factory. Yes, exactly. And we... And again, I'm not looking to get into the use of the word or not, but when I hear it, when I see it, whatever you want to call it, I see a guy trying to answer a heckler doing a bad Southern character. Again, this is one man's opinion. I think he was trying to do a character and went somewhere perhaps with that character that shouldn't have gone. But when all of a sudden he's out there going, I have hate in my heart. I don't know. The Michael Richards I know didn't have hate in his heart. I, I, I just think, I don't know what went on with the advice he got there. And by the way, he did need to apologize for it. But I do think there was a way of apologizing and simply saying, I tried something and I screwed up and I went somewhere I shouldn't have gone on. But I don't, he's not a racist. I mean, I, I, I'll never understand it, I guess I can honestly say. He, his physicality is so good. He was so funny. And I know he's sort of, I guess, a little typecast as Kramer. But if you look back on some of his Friday stuff, Fridays was a sketch show that went on Friday nights concurrently with Saturday Night Live. It was a different production company with John Rourke and Michael Richards and a number of amazingly talented people. And he people. used to play that kid with the toy soldiers yeah. and so funny. I mean, I remember seeing him even like on an early St. Elsewhere episodes as like a documentary producer, filmmaker guy. And he was in that wonderful little Diane Keaton movie with uh, John Turturro called Unstrung Heroes, where he plays sort of a it's John Turturro, raise, uh, he's widowed, raising his son with his, the help of his two brothers who are troubled. And he's one of the troubled brothers. And it's this just wonderful, small little performance. It's just lovely. It's a, it's a really heartbreaking performance, actually. And he, I just think he can do all these wonderful things and doesn't get a chance to. Adam Sandler. Sandler's hilarious. Um, he's always been super nice to me when I run into him out here, which is always a wonderful thing. You know, I, I can't imagine that he reflects on it much. When we were back there at SNL, and again, this is a, you know, it's sort of a thing. He really wanted you to be like a writer for him. He was looking for people to write for him. And I was, I guess, just never a guy that wanted to just write for him or whoever. And by the way, I think you could probably have made a, I could have, you know, you could make a great career out of being a writer for Adam Sandler. I always loved I leaned more towards the political stuff, which was not necessarily a lot of stuff that, you know, he was in as much. Um, but, you know, there were definitely times I remember him working on like uh, one of his early stand-up albums and we were all just hanging out and kibitzing on that a little bit. Uh, again, nothing but fond memories. But like I said, I feel like he never necessarily, he never thought of me as one of his guys. And that's okay. I, I don't know what else to say. Yeah. Kevin Smith. Uh Kevin, I love. Kevin, I was a fan of, you know, before I met him. It was interesting because we had the same agent, which is obviously a very LA thing to say. And I remember them always going, do you want to meet him? Do you want to meet him? And I don't, I never want to meet somebody without a reason. I, I, I that's always a bothersome thing for me. Um, I, you know, we joked earlier, I collect a lot of things. And so there are artists that I collect where it's always like, do you want to meet the guy? Do you want to meet the guy? And I never want to meet them because I don't want them to like, I want to meet them and have them be hateful or awful and then want to go home and throw my collection out the window. <laughs> so it was always like, do you want to meet Kevin? Do you want to meet Kevin? And it was sort of like, well, 
I do, but I don't. And um, when this idea, which was soon after I had uh, gone from Seinfeld into my uh, development deal, this notion of turning Clerks into an animated show kind of came up, and they were like, "Would you be interested?" And then, and that was when I sort of said, "Yes, that's a great reason to meet him." I wasn't a hundred percent sure I wanted to do the show. I didn't know what he wanted to do in the show, but I was like, "I want to meet him." And I remember going down to New Jersey uh, to Red Bank, where he was, you know, based at the time and stuff. And I think we went and we sat at uh, this like diner that he liked to go to, and we sat there. And it was so funny. It was just one of those sort of like, that sounds so odd to say, but just these, one of these just like magical connections where it was just, we were, we had watched the same SNL stuff. We had loved the same movies and quoted it. We read the same comic books and it was just one of these things. And then out of that came the clerk's cartoon, which we were sort of just saw in this really fun way. And I just, you know, we were a couple of years, I think, too early. If we were doing that Clerks cartoon thing now, I, 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 I there's stuff in that Clerks cartoon that is some of the stuff that I'm most proudest of in my life. Our second episode was a clip show. I, I will, I, I will, I will defend that episode. You know, uh, I, I just think it's something very special, and uh, I loved every second of working with him, and even just sort of. I, we we live near each other now, so it's always sort of fun when I'm driving down the hill of like, oh, I get to run into him and vice versa. And he's a huge Veep fan, which I had known. Um, I He had told me that I had gone uh, on his uh, last movie, Tusk. He'd invited me over to watch it before it was in theaters, just in his, uh, in his you know, in his uh, office, which was just so fun. And, uh, and I think I even pop in as an extra on... Uh, Jay and Bob strike back. You see me standing in front of a bus drinking coffee. And I, I think I'm in a deleted scene. But I, so it's always just fun to see him and hang out. But I knew he was a big Veep fan. So I made sure he was kind of getting the episodes when like the press were getting them, not for him to review them, but just because he was a fan. And I honestly just, I, I just, I, I wanted to know. I mean, it's, don't get me wrong. It's been nice that people have been really enjoying Veep. But when you hear it from another writer, person that you respect that's kind of great and i was really happy when he kind of when he dug it so that was nice yeah the late phil hartman oh man i i, I you know you can watch that show and i don't think you'll ever you can watch snl you can watch news radio and i don't think people will ever get quite how good he was just the way he processed stuff and could just go from character to character to character to character you know, I was a young guy. He was there my first two years. I don't pretend like we were great friends in any way, shape, or form. But I'll always remember when I was on Seinfeld, we did this gag where we needed a, a voice on the other end of the phone, and we got Phil to do it, and I went and supervised the session. I hadn't seen him in like, you know, a year or two. And, you know, again, the little things, he just could, you know, he certainly acted, and I don't mean this in a phony way, he was glad to see me on a level beyond what our relationship had been, and it was just really nice. And I used to pop by News Radio a little bit because I knew those guys and actually had almost worked there before the Seinfeld thing happened. Um, and it was just always just nice to see him and just such a such a loss, obviously. Conan O'Brien. Uh, I don't know Conan that well. My experiences with Conan, obviously beyond the show itself, have just been, um, uh, you know, we're both lampoon people. And so when I think of Conan, I always think of him um, 
there was like a, uh, a, a dinner, uh, a lampoon dinner where he kind of got up and spoke. And I just, you know, it's one of those things where, uh, those few minutes where he was speaking were some of just the funniest minutes of anyone sort of getting up and talking that I've ever seen. And I, I just, I always remember that. <laughs> Larry David. Not as curmudgeonly or grouchy or whatever word you want to use as you think. Bit of a softy, dare I say. Uh, the thing I love about Larry is a lot of the stuff on the show is stuff that he sort of thinks of doing but doesn't actually act on in real life. We sort of save it for the show and do it on the show. <laughs> Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin, I always think of as the fish that got away. Um, I had the pleasure of when I was at SNL of Alec hosting a whole bunch of times. And it was, I, I'm not the only one that has ever said this. He was just so funny when he came into the show and we would really, we'd save stuff up for him. And there are episodes of him hosting uh, that, oh God, it's just so fun, the stuff we did with him. We did one sketch that I don't care. It's again, uh, to me, it's smart, stupid. Something Al Franken and I wrote, it was a 60s sort of men from uncle kind of uh, parody, like fake TV show called The Mimic where he was sort of the mimic, the master of a thousand voices. And uh, Julia Sweeney was this sort of elegant woman whose husband had been kidnapped or something like that. And she hires them. He shows up and he's awful. And a lot of his mimicry is just like, hey, hey, you want a pizza? And it's just terrible. He's an awful mimic. And like, he does an impression of her where he's just, he's like, I'm you. And then Paul, I think Paul McCartney was hosting and so Paul McCartney was playing the butler and then he doesn't in Paul McCartney. It was, he was the worst impressionist ever. But again, that sort of courage and conviction and that handsomeness to pull it off. And when we were done with those episodes, you know, when, when, I, when I left SNL, we had stayed in touch and were f f friendly for a while. And he had, even then was talking about doing a sitcom. And I tried. And I, I guess we just never had the great idea and I never had like, I never had like, and, and I guess this was maybe my stupidity. I never had like, a, I never like was like, hey, Touchstone Television, help me land Alec Baldwin for this idea. It was always sort of me getting together with Alec or me getting together with Alec and his guy. And it just, I never could make it happen. I never could. And I was so happy for him when they did 30 Rock and yet, of course, incredibly jealous. So, The late Chris Farley. Oh, just uh, such a sweet guy. And I'm sure people have said this in other places. You know, there was an aspect to him of just like such a big puppy dog in a weird way and just sort of wanted to have fun and just wanted to make people laugh, wanted to make people laugh on the show, wanted to make you laugh in the office, you know, just a wonderful, wonderful way. Um I, I, my, my fondest memory, dare I say, is uh, we did him, you know, in that sort of that third year of the show, we were having trouble doing political sketches because the Dana and the Phils had left. And so Chris ended up being Newt Gingrich. And that was the whole Gingrich contract with America, Republican thing. And we did a sketch where they were sort of racing and jamming through other provisions in the contract with America. And uh, Chris got invited down to D.C. to talk to like a Republican caucus breakfast. 
So I went down with Chris and just, you know, worked with him and wrote stuff and got on the cards, whatever, so that he could kind of, he, you know, he wasn't, I'm not quite sure he knew how, he knew it was important and big, but I'm not quite sure he knew who all these people were. And it was, just, you know, a lot of Republican heavy hitters. And we went in there and did this thing uh, and really, you know, just sort of, it was, it was just wonderful to watch him because on the one hand, I'm not sure he quite knew every little subtle reference we were making to certain bills and things that were going on. God damn, he just played it with the conviction and just won them all over. And I remember the, the part that I loved was walking through like the hallways of Congress. And I remember John Kerry, who was a senator at the time, stopping Chris to like get a picture with him. And it was just like, I guess I hadn't been out and about with a lot of like the SNL cast, maybe a little bit, but it was always New York where New Yorkers kind of take everything with a grain of salt. And it was just amazing to sort of see that rock star power, even in DC that Chris had. It was just kind of amazing. And he was always, and I, and I know it sounds silly and again, but we've talked about it. He was also always very grateful. He was always very grateful with like when you wrote for him, when you did stuff with him and hell, it was always, again, always nice to hear that kind of stuff. Jerry Seinfeld. It's funny. Jerry's just, I, I think of him as the pro. I don't know what else other word to use. He's like, it's like, or the professional. I think if you remember that Luke Besson movie about the assassin who like every morning, like pulls out one of his matching suits and then has breakfast the same way and then goes and just efficiently kills the person in the exact <laughs> perfect way. And I, sometimes I think of Jerry in that way. He's just, it's just like, Everything he does is very specific and thought out and just like not a wasted moment. And obviously he gets there with his act by working on it, but it, and, but just every word is perfect. Every spot is perfect. And what I really remember about him, what I really loved was when Larry left the show and because I did one season with, I, I hung out for some of a season and then I did a season with Larry and then Larry left the show and then we did two seasons without him. And uh, my first episode of the season without Larry was the Bizarro Jerry episode. And, you know, I sometimes joke that, you know, when I die, that'll be the one thing that kind of gets mentioned on my, my tombstone. Um, I, and I just remember the fact that as, that was sort of as Seinfeld sort of took its turn a little bit even more into sort of a little bit of absurdity. And I think a lot of that came from the fact that a lot of us, a lot of the second generation of Seinfeld writers were fans of the show. So we had sort of watched the show as viewers and then kind of were commenting a little bit on the show as people who had watched the show. So you, we started to make more jokes about how disposable the, girl, the Jerry girlfriends were each week. And we were sort of ever so slightly, never breaking the fourth wall, but ever so slightly commenting on the show and then ideas like the Kenny Rogers chicken roaster and the Bizarro Jerry, I think were, you know, a little out there, but boy, Jerry just was so excited to try it. And I, and, uh, I, I just, I love that. Lauren Michaels. <sighs> I don't know. The Godfather. It's funny because I, I went back about a month or two ago, Julia hosted SNL and I went back with her and I wrote on, I wrote for the week and it was so weird because I hadn't worked there since, uh, I guess since, uh, 95, I left in the, I left after the, I was there for three years. I was there 92, 93, 93, 94, 94, 95. I left at the end of 95 and 
nothing has changed. I mean, <laughs> the only thing that changed is you have to pay for your own like Starbucks. Like that's that we used to get the, the 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 food and the drink for free, but now you pay. But otherwise, it is this. It is the same. It's like a guy with a messy desk who knows where everything is. That that's Saturday Night Live. Do you know what I mean? It's like there's no formal structure per se, and yet it's everyone is following this sort of weird rhythms. And I found myself there on, you know, the writing night at like whatever it was, one, two in the morning, and I kind of just giggled, like, I can't believe I'm sitting here um doing this again. And and it was fantastic for a week. Glad I'm not there full time, but uh, gosh, it was great. Everybody was very welcoming and all that kind of good stuff too. But it was really weird. I mean, it was like this odd combination of like going back to your high school where every, or your elementary school, where everything seems smaller where you're like, boy, were the urinals that low? And yet lots of familiar faces, a lot of support staff, still the same people. Cute car guy, Wally. He's still a cute car guy. You know what I mean? It's like, it's so, so much the same. And yet you've changed and you're in a different place, but you're back there and, but you, you fall back into it very easily. And I, and I, it's like a seductive trap. Like, uh, like you kind of go, boy, you could live in New York and you could work here and you do this, but, uh, a week was good. But, uh, yeah, it's a disorganized organization, I guess is my main point. It's amazing to me when I was, when I was back with, uh, with Julia and I was walking around some of, uh, 30 rock and he's, Got SNL and the Tonight Show and the Seth Show, and they were building the uh, the sets for Marty and uh, whatever. And it was just like, wow, he just he is late night. I guess that's what I should say. The word that jumps to mind is he is NBC late night and all aspects of it, which is just uh, good for him. <laughs> Last one, Julia Louis Dreyfus. I've joked about this, uh, and I don't know why I keep going back to it, but. Uh, She's Seabiscuit. Uh, <laughs> there's an aspect of Seabiscuit, if you ever read the Laura Hildebrand book, which is he won so many races that at a certain point they started put, filling his saddlebags with like lead bars to try and slow Seabiscuit down. And then the question was, could he win with lead bars? And he could. And that, that is Julia. We could, you could weigh her down with saddlebags of lead bars. And I mean... You know, people get very hung up in the whole like funniest man, funniest woman. I just think she's the funniest person on television right now. I think she does things in a way where she can like smile and cry or be angry and happy or be confused, but definitive and combine multiple emotions and multiple things in one face where her eyes are doing one thing, her mouth is doing something else, and she's saying something, a third thing in a way that just no one can and and just these things that you want in a comedian her lack of vanity her willingness to just have pour shit on me and pour some more shit on me it's just incredible and uh i guess at the end of the day when i why did i take if you want to go why did i take the veep job um because you know i will say this i wasn't if you had asked me like a, you know, whatever, a year and a half ago, what do I want to do? It wasn't necessarily take over a show in its fifth season. Do you know what I mean? Like that seemed a little, not that I was like, oh, yikes, but it, it did seem like, well, there's probably a certain amount of people are going to go, we don't like it as much and whatever. But 
and I think the whole cast is wonderful, but I, I, I sort of couldn't, I couldn't say no to her. I couldn't say no to the opportunity to work with her. I, I, I can only tell you that when we were doing Eurotrip, this is a good example, which was a couple of years after Seinfeld, we just were stealing moves from Julia and trying to teach them to Michelle Trachtenberg. It was just like, this is how Julia would do it, I think. And I don't know what else to say. It just, uh, yeah, it's just a treat and a half, yeah. Your proudest moment in show business. Hmm. I, I guess I will say for the moment, although obviously there's lots of things I like and whatever, there was something about the, the morning after the Bizarro Jerry aired where, and again, this is sort of earlier internet, there's no Twitter. So there wasn't that sort of 24 hour a day where like now a Veep episode airs and I can look on Twitter or, or all of a sudden there are seven reviews of the episode. But it was, and I, and I think people forget, you know, where cable wasn't quite cable, there weren't quite as many choices, just how high Seinfeld's ratings were, how popular it was. And that sort of moment of having a show I wrote that was very me with the comic books and all that kind of and references in it, you know, a show about bizarro Superman, if you will, in the Seinfeld world and a lot of other little things from my life and stuff, um, you know, where, because uh, uh, like the man hand story is in there and that's sort of based on my wife and a lot of stuff like that, where the sort of the, not the fallout, but the, 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 the reception to that as and Seinfeld and it being the show in America was was pretty insane. Is it an odd thing you're coming in, Larry's gone, one of your first episodes is the Bizarro episode. Is Larry the kind of guy that calls you and says, Dave, when I left, I didn't think anybody would be able to exceed my expectations, but you did it, or is there a thing you think where Larry's like, Huh, man, just right out of the gate, they just nailed it. And guess I wasn't necessary this year. Uh, you know, I'm trying to remember back because um, we would still go to ball games and stuff like that. And I, I, I get a general, I, I kind of remember him liking the show and what we were doing. It was a little different, whatever. Um, I don't think he's not the kind of guy to do that, but he did. I don't remember it. I don't remember a moment like that. Uh, I will tell you, um, you know, like, uh, you know, like uh, on Veep, for example, you know, you know, he, you know, I don't know, I hope I'm not saying anything out of turn, you know, he gave me a yell and gave a yell to Julia about how much he's liking it. And that meant a tremendous amount. So I'll, I'll certainly say that. So I think he can be the kind of guy that does that. I just don't, I don't remember it. I'm an old man. So <laughs> far from it, your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel your career to the next level. I guess there were sort of two, I guess, that come to mind. I guess one was sort of, you know, I love Eurotrip. I love it dearly. I love the experience. It was really fun and all that. You know, it was, it was one of those things where we'd worked so hard on it for two years. I'm sure you've heard this from other people in the movie industry. And sort of, you know, by two o'clock on the Friday it opened, we knew it was not, not good. And it, you just start to question a lot of choices and decisions in terms of, in terms of, uh, like, you know, what you did and what you didn't do and what you might've done differently. And it definitely made me sort of like, 
think about things hard, you know, very hard. And also in some ways, you know, we had done that. And at the time, I think we'd all hoped that that was the beginning of like movie directing and that kind of stuff. Because Jeff Alec and I sort of co-directed it, but the Directors Guild made us pick one of us out of a hat to get the credit. They wouldn't approve us as a team, even though we'd been working as a team for a number of years, which was their hypocrisy. Um, and we couldn't get arrested. And in some ways, it's in a weird way, it's what led to Curb Your Enthusiasm, which was sort of like Larry had an office and we needed an office in a weird way. That's kind of how it happened. Um, uh, so that was definitely sort of a little weird where like I can remember, I can remember like talking with an executive about something about another movie and they started talking about us directing a test scene and you kind of went a <laughs> test scene. What the heck? And then I can remember once we sort of, we did Seinfeld, we did, I'm sorry, we did one year of Curb Enthusiasm where we helped Larry break the season, but we weren't involved in the production. Um, that was the season he, Richard needed the kidney. So we were writing, but we didn't, we weren't there. Then the following season, we started, I guess, more formally exec producing and started directing episodes. And not that some big movie directing break ever happened, but nobody ever asked for a test scene again. So that was sort of, I guess, interesting. Um, I know we talked a little bit about The Dictator, but I was away from my family a lot on The Dictator and definitely did not feel like the time was worth it. And I think I came to certain conclusions about the kind of work I was going to take and sort of... Uh, you know, I'm not going to go and be on a set unless I am the director next time, which was nothing against the director, Larry Charles. It was just sort of, why am I here 24 hours a day and we're, you know, in all these places, if it's going to be this, if this is going to be the final product. And also I'm not even really getting an ulti ultimately a say. So, you know, I, I do think you make decisions out of these sort of dis out of these disappointments, I guess. God, last question. Yeah. What advice do you have for the young artist who's a performer also the young writer who's growing up maybe in a complex in new york city or somewhere <laughs> along the line and anywhere in the world and how would you say to them that they could get to the next level and have the kind of career that you're having the thing to me that is i guess amazing that when i sit back and look at it and by the way this I guess to me, this podcast, by the way, is a part of it, which is just the, the internet. I know it sounds silly to say, but the notion that if you put your mind to it, you could write sketches and start filming them with your friends. And maybe even, even if you were in an improv group, whatever, and start filming them and putting them up because you could do it with your phone. You could do it with your phone and a, you know, a gorilla stand. You don't even need a tripod at this point. You could make stuff. You could get stuff out there. And I guess that's what I always tell people is just, it sounds silly because it's like, oh, keep at it. Um, but honestly, it is that thing of like, if you want to be a writer, just keep writing, just keep generating material. And then nowadays, just try and get it out there. Film it yourself. Learn to do that. And you'll not only pick up skills like directing and editing and all that kind of stuff, which maybe isn't a way in or a sideways into something, but Get, there, there is the ability to get your stuff out there. And the number of people, like I, when I was in New York and I was talking with uh, my old pal, Mike Shoemaker, who was back in the day an associate producer at SNL and is now uh, the, I think, exec producer of the Seth Meyers show and had done the same on the Jimmy Fallon first incarnation, the late night Jimmy Fallon and now the late night Seth Meyers show. It sounded like 90% of his writers are Twitter people. 
And so the fact that if you want to write jokes, that you can just write jokes and put them out on Twitter, and if they're good enough, cream will rise to the top and you can be found. But you know how you're not going to do it is sitting, whatever, in your basement complaining about how all the shows suck and how you could do a better job, but you don't necessarily write those jokes. And I'm sure any of those Twitter people would tell you they didn't write their first joke and then it got a million hits and they got a job on whatever on, you know, the Seth Meyers show. They wrote a lot of jokes. They wrote a shitload of jokes. You know, it's, you know, whatever, Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours. But it's like writers write. They don't write one script where, you know, I don't know, George dates a transvestite and then angrily sit around going, wouldn't George date a transvestite? I don't care if you think it's stupid. This is my script. You know what I mean? It's like, no, George wouldn't date a transvestite for a thousand reasons, not because they're a transvestite. I, no problem with any of that because it's stupid and hacky. It's a hacky, shitty idea. That's why he wouldn't do it. That's why it wouldn't be an episode of Seinfeld. And so write another script. And even if you're right that somehow that is brilliant and we're all wrong, then write 10 more scripts. And when you're in charge of Hollywood, pull out your transvestite script and shove it all up our asses and make us pay for it. But don't just sit there angrily with your transvestite script thinking like you're right and we're all wrong and that eventually we'll come to you. Write more. I, I, that's, I guess, it's my, my screed at millennials. So there you go. <laughs> Dave Mandel, you were a wealth of power and information. <laughs> well, thank you very much. A thank you so this much. Was really fun. I hope you had a great time. Really enjoyable. Although I really have to go to the bathroom now. <laughs> Me too. All right. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It's centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years was the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hit men from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and it involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event. 
just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session, barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard. And because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this. And I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels you pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.